Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I was reminded again and again this week that it is breathed out by you. It is useful and correcting in our souls. It is clear, sufficient, the foundation upon which the church is built and the content of the church's mission. Lord, this morning, would you, by the power of your Spirit, teach us from your Word so that we, too, may bring and ascribe and delight in the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I went to the mail this week uh, lots of times because I'm writing a paper. And when you're writing a paper and you're at home, it's nice to have something to do to break up the constant sitting in one place and staring at one screen and the occasional burst of typing. Uh, I think the visit to the mailbox probably coincided with the amount of typing, right? That's just kind of how that goes. You type a little, and then you're like, man, I want to stretch my legs. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved going to the mailbox because you never know what's there. In fact, I've resisted for years uh, turning on this feature that the Postal Service offers now where they send you a scanned picture of what's coming in the mail before it actually comes. I mean, that takes all the fun out of it, right? I want to go and see what's there. Oh, that's a bill. Oh, that's an ad. Oh, that's cool, you know. And my wife can tell you I very quickly can vanish into whichever magazine just came. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll read a cereal box if it's available, but magazines are a step above that. So uh, I, I love going to the mail, but then you know that you find those things that often come in very official-looking packages, right? I mean, they have an air of gravity and woe about them. And you open them up with a little bit of trepidation, and you begin to read, and you realize, oh, this is an ad. You know, it takes you about three paragraphs through, and you're like, wait a minute. This, this is not, and then you pitch it before you even try to see what they're advertising. And they're like, you know, you must appear in court or else you should buy our thing. And you're like, what? That's, you just suckered me into reading something um, that I didn't know what it was. And the gravity and the form and the length of it made me think maybe this will be worth it. And then slowly it dawns on you that actually it's not worth it at all. If I was to title this message this morning, Michael, uh, since he has to type it in. Uh, if I was to title this, and you know I'm terrible at titles, but I think I would title this TLDR. This is Paul's TLDR, or maybe TLBR, we'll talk about that in a second, to Romans. 
Paul loves to set world records about the length of things that he writes. Uh, and this is a world record holder letter introduction. One of the nerds that I read this week said that there are no other remaining Greek letters with so long of an introduction. <laughs> the average, two sentences, very short sentences. You know, kind of like when you're a kid and you're writing a letter to your, your mom. Dear mom, please buy Cheerios, you know, and then you sign it. Paul writes so extended of an introduction because Paul is on a mission. I read to you in our introduction from chapters 15 and 16 of this letter, which give you a little bit more of an idea of the mission that he's on. But if you weren't here, I'll remind you that he's seeking a new partner, a new home-sending church for his mission as he moves from the eastern Mediterranean world into the western Mediterranean world. And the church at Rome, though not founded by him, is one with which he has deep connections but no personal experience. He's never been there. And Paul, both in chapter 15 and in chapter 1, reminds the Romans of the fact that they live in the same world, not the Roman world, but the, the world of the church. They have a shared mission and a shared pur purpose. In fact, of all of Paul's letters, this book has more shared language than anywhere else. And I told you a couple weeks ago, that's because in almost every other letter, Paul is responding to some bad situation in the life of a church. Either he's got run out of town, like in 1 Thessalonians, or he's writing his 6,000th letter to the Corinthians to say, would you please obey Christ, right? Would you please conform your thinking to that of Christ? But here, he has an opportunity to talk to a healthy church. And so there's shared language all over. When I come, I want you to minister to me and I to you, right? There's this partnership that he displays all the way through this book. But here in Romans 1, in this introduction, Paul wants to focus on this. This is his moment for them to open the letter on a Sunday morning and, and see whether it's worth reading through. This is his opportunity to capture and orient their attention, and he does it because gospel obedience is the shared purpose of every Christian life. Gospel obedience is a theme that runs through this book from chapter 1 to the very last words of chapter 16. It's actually somewhat unique to Romans. But this shared obedience in Christ is a shared purpose for every Christian life. But the Romans haven't met Paul. They have probably heard of him, some good things, some bad things. So how are the Romans to grasp this partnership that they have with Paul. He has a brief moment to capture their attention and direct this conversation. So how are the Romans to grasp this partnership that they have with Paul in obedience to Christ? Well, in this introduction, he helps them recognize his master, his message, and his mission. The Romans will come to understand that this gospel obedience is something that they're Unwill, unknowingly so far, but nevertheless doing in partnership with Paul because they actually share a master, a message, and a mission, and we do as well. Notice in verse 1 his introduction of his master. It's done in reverse way by discussing who he is in relation to his master, but make no mistake, all of Romans chapter 1 is dominated by the person of Christ. 
He explains his relationship to Christ. He explains Christ's mastery over him in three simple ideas. That of being a slave, of being summoned, and being set apart. Paul is a slave. Paul has been summoned to a task, and Paul has been set apart for that task. Notice that he describes himself simply, in your Bibles usually, as a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. In the introduction, I I mentioned to you that slavery is always a hot topic, a dangerous topic, but for the Romans, it was a pervasive topic. Rome, as a city and as a culture, was a, a, a... society of slaves. I think people have estimated somewhere between 50 and 60% of the Roman population at any given point were in slavery. Of course, that was a somewhat fluid thing because people were slaves who were in good positions and there were freemen who were in bad positions and those things swapped places. Freemen would sell themselves into limited terms of slavery or unlimited and slaves would be freed, although never quite independent of their masters. Uh, But this is a concept with which the majority of the people in the church at Rome are instantly familiar but notice that the focus here isn't on the slavery, but on the master. It's immediately focused onto the person of Christ. He is a slave of someone. He's a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, we could spend a lot of time this morning talking about all the things that go into this idea of Christ Jesus and Paul, and that might bore you to death. But I want you to focus here on just what Paul brings his attention to for the Romans in this introduction. Remember, I told you a couple weeks ago that we don't need other things to understand our Bible. There are helpful things. We could go talk about slavery in the Roman Empire. But what we particularly need is our Bibles and the context of what Paul's telling us right here. Remember, he's writing to people who don't know him. And his letter didn't come with an ESV study Bible, as much as I love that, with it to explain these contexts. He's quite capable of explaining what he means right here. And so there's lots of things that Christ Jesus does legitimately mean in the Bible. But our attention ought to be focused right here on what he is saying. And Paul is at pains in this letter and this introduction to give us a Christ-dominated, a theologically rich introduction. But it's not an introduction that is intended to leave you with a degree. It's not an introduction that's intended to give you just enough information to win the next debate that you have with someone else about theology, right? There there is uh, a fancy term for uh, the theology of the person of God. It's theology proper, right? That's the study of who God is. This is not theology proper, although it begins with God. This is proper theology. That's why I have tea up here this morning. That's a, a British idea. This is proper theology, right? It's, it's the sort of theology. I'm going to stop that now, right? It's the sort of theology that changes something in you, right? When you get a good, proper cup of tea, which is why I have one up here, right? You don't go about your morning writing your paper in the same way. Something changes in your life. There's power and implications for, that are related to what you drink. And now I'm glorifying a cup of tea in a way I never intended to, right? But this is proper theology. It's shared around an obedience to Christ. These things are absolutely necessary to understand for you to go about your everyday life. These two things are connected. What you know of Christ drives what you do for Christ and how you proclaim 
Christ. And this is true for Paul, and it's true for the Romans, and it's true for us. This is a proper theology, and it begins with Christ Jesus. We'll get into that more in a minute, but for now, Christ is a title. It's an honorific, right? It's something the Romans are really familiar with because who's the boss? Where they live. This is the, 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 the sad thing about living in somewhere like, you know, I don't know, Blunt County because we don't have an Augustus mayor. We just have Mr. Mayor and nobody probably even knows who he is, right? But in the Roman world, they're very used to somebody starting off his name with who he is and why he matters. He's Augustus Caesar. It's not his mom's bad naming choices. That's a title that's supposed to bring across all the great things that he does and brings to his people, right? And so Paul uses and mirrors that language, but here the focus is on Jesus as the Christ. It's an Old Testament term that means anointed, anointed, right? What do you anoint somebody for? Well, all sorts of things, I suppose. You can anoint your siblings with your grape juice if you're upset with them, but that's not really a great thing to do. In this case, it's an anointing that is centered around God's purpose for someone's in life, and it's almost always in the Old Testament focused around kingship. You anoint a king. Remember what happens to David when he's little, right? Well, not that little. Evidently, he's slaying bears, but, you know, littler. And he's anointed by Samuel, and immediately he's like, well, thanks, now I have a price on my head, right? Because it's, it's not a confusing thing. Well, maybe this will lead to something in his life someday. No, it's a declaration that this one's going to be the king. And present kings don't tend to like living future kings unless they're their kids, right? And then even sometimes not then. This is an anointing for rule. It's an anointing for power. It's an anointing for a specific biblically defined destiny that Paul will unfold for us in a minute. But for now, I want you to notice that this is an anointing for rule for a very specific human person, for Jesus. It's a human name. It's a name that his mother gave to him. Yes, it means God saves, but you know what? Lots of Jewish boys had that name from Joshua, which is the same name, all the way down. This is The anointed Jesus, that's what makes him different. He's one who will be anointed, but we'll have to ask Paul, with what will he be anointed? Good question. Hold on to that. This ruling man is Paul's master. And Paul's slavery is focused around his master's Purposes. Now, there's great honor with that. This idea of servant or slave of God is always found in the Old Testament. It starts with Moses. Moses is pretty good company to be in. It's a serious commitment. It's a serious claim. It says, I have a certain level of authority, but that authority and that purpose is connected directly to the master. By the way, notice Paul's immediate out the gate starting Christological statement here. Jesus, he is a slave of Christ Jesus in the same way that Moses was a slave or a servant of God. That's intentional. Paul has a master to whom he is a slave. Paul has a master who has summoned him. He is a called apostle. Now, I don't know about you, but very rarely in my life has my full name been used. Um, it's, then don't start, okay? This won't end well for you. My full name is Nathaniel Christian Simmons. Even saying that makes me a little nervous because the context in which that is usually or was usually used was when my mom wanted me yesterday 
for something I had done in the present, right? That's a summons. When your parents or someone else uses your full name and that tone of voice that you know that I'm talking about, you are not being recommended to do something. You are being directed to do something. And it has its own like suction cup attached, right? There's an irresistibility to, I had better show up, or this is going to be worse. Paul has been summoned to do something. This is biblical language that we'll unpack all the way through the book of Romans, because the idea of being called is one that theologically permeates the pages that follow. But this is, to start with, a summons for a particular task and office. He has been summoned by his master to be an apostle. The nature of his slavery is focused around a particular job that his master has in mind. He has been summoned with authority to speak with authority. An apostle is someone who is sent out to be the mouthpiece of someone else. And in the New Testament, that could just mean that you are sent out to be a missionary in the church. It could mean that you are sent out to preach the gospel generally, but it usually means that you are one of 12 special people plus one. Right? 12 plus 1, Paul identifies himself in 1 Corinthians 13 as the plus 1 to that 12. It means someone who, 1 Corinthians tells us, has seen the risen Christ and has been directed by the risen Christ to a specific task. Turn over to Galatians 1, and we'll read it in a minute, but I'm going to keep moving here for a second. If you turn, then we'll be ready. Turn over to Galatians 1, because Paul is a called apostle... He is a summoned apostle. He has responded as one does to the authority of his master. And he has been, as an apostle, set apart for something specific. This is also familiar Jewish language. That the idea of being set apart or sanctified, consecrated, something terms that you know are things that happen in the life of Israel. People are set apart as Nazarenes. People are set apart, the Levites are set apart from the rest of the tribes to be priests. Being set apart means you have a special focus that God has designed for your life and your ministry. You've been consecrated for it. Notice how Paul describes this in Galatians. He says, verse 11 of chapter 1, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It's a radical statement that I wish I could preach, but that's a different sermon, right? It's not according to man. Your ideas and my ideas, unless they were derived from this book, are according to man. You don't have any new ideas. I don't either. That's why we play Frisbee on Monday nights, right? I told you, I don't have any new ideas. I only recycle things that you know. No matter how smart a philosopher you are, no matter how into deconstruction you might be, you borrowed your ideas and your language inescapably from other men. Paul says, no, full stop. That's not the nature of my message. I would have you know that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? We often equate the idea of revelation with the understanding part. That's true here, but Paul means a revelation that put him on his back. He saw the risen Christ. He got the revelation delivered to him via FedEx, not by next day shipping, right? I mean, it's an instantaneous, in-person turning and declaring of the glory of Christ. This is, you've heard of my former life uh, in Judaism, I won't go through that now because you know it. Go down to verse 15, notice this. When God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, 
the entirety of Paul's life was designed by God for God's own purposes. Now think about how remarkable that is because up until the when that happens in this verse, Paul's life has been seemingly completely at odds with God's purposes. He's throwing Christians in jail. But his entire life has been designed by God for God's purposes. And this when happens here in verse 15. When God, who had set me apart from my, father, my mother's womb, not my father's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son. Do you hear that called language again? He has been summoned. He has been moved from his former life of disobedience into his new life of obedience, which is the key word here that we have shared with Paul, a shared obedience to Christ. He's been moved by God's grace. What does that mean? He wasn't moved because he was a great persecutor. He wasn't moved because he had a nice resume. He wasn't moved because he began to read some books and have a change of heart. No, the effective thing that transformed Paul's life was not any growing conviction. It was not any changing circumstances. It was not any new thinking. It was quite simply the authoritative recognition of Jesus Christ as his Lord. Sovereignly and effectively and immediately accomplished by Christ on the road to Damascus. Right? What does Paul say? In the midst of saying, who are you? He adds, Lord. Who are you, God? Who are you, God of Israel? There's an immediate understanding. Paul has been set apart. He has been called. And that's a shared experience that we have with him. Do you know? It's so easy to read this as theology proper, which is not a bad word, and I'm going to turn it into one. It's so easy to read this as things that you can bring to your next debate, as interesting Wikipedia articles on theology for late at night. But Paul's use of calling and transformation and being set apart are directed to every believer throughout the book of Romans. You, in Christ, from your very conception to your death, were set apart for God's purpose. And you, like Paul, if you are in Christ, were called by the authority of your master to obey in faith the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your shared purpose with Paul. Now notice, I did not say you also had the same task. You share the authority of your master. You were summoned. You share the power of your master. You were set apart by his calling of you. You do not share the task that he has from his master. He had a specific self-life-limited task, right? Best by end of 80, you know, 95 or something like that. He is one who saw the risen Christ, and his authority derives from the fact that he received the gospel not from man, but directly from Christ, and when he passed off the scene, the foundation was laid. Well, he wasn't probably the last apostle to pass off the scene, but it's a time-limited task. You share his purpose, but not his task. But notice, notice that being set apart by his master, being summoned by his master, being an absolute slavery, being completely consumed with his master's purpose is all oriented around his master's message, right? You have a shared message that you are moving forward with Paul. 
This is the end of verse 1 through the end of verse 4. Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. Now, if you came to our hermeneutics tonight, the other night, I hope that you have your little block diagrams that you did, or your phrase diagrams that you did, or your blockhead t-shirts. Any one of those will work, right? I hope that you have those handy. And I, I just want you to notice the nature of the structure of what I'm telling you. I don't usually draw attention to this, but I want you to see how my outline points fit with my block diagram. And hopefully, as you go, you can grade me and say whether I did a good job or not, right? But notice here that he has a message, and that message is defined by a person, a promise, a pedigree, a power, and a proclamation. We'll go through that slower in a second. But notice here how I've divided this up. It's for the gospel. That's the message. Now, which he promised beforehand. I'm sorry, the gospel of God. That's the person. The gospel of God, that's the person which he promised beforehand, that's promise. Concerning his son, we're going to subdivide that down into two parts, so I didn't give that one on its own. Who was descended from David, that's the pedigree, and was declared to be the son of God in power, that's the power, right? Jesus Christ our Lord, that's the proclamation. So follow along, see whether the details and the questions that you had from your block diagram makes sense with what I'm saying. Paul's master has set him apart to have a unique role and a common task. The gospel is our common task in the life of the church. Paul wants a partnership with this church to make the gospel go forward, not only in their own personal obedience, but also in proclaiming that gospel to the Western Roman Empire. It's a shared gospel with unique tasks. We each, in the life of the church, have different unique tasks, and they work together in harmony, like Smed taught us last week about the nature of the church causing the church to grow as it clings to Christ, and as each person exercises his giftedness, whether it's an apostle, Paul, time-limited offer, a pastor, teacher, someone who explains the word, or you as a member who might be an evangelist, or who might set up and do coffee. All of those things are contributing to the mission of the gospel, and all of them have as their motivating influence the power and the glory of Christ. Why do you show up early in the morning to set up chairs, Jared? Because the gospel has to go forward. Well, why would you, do, why would you get out of bed with a smile to make the gospel go forward instead of being frustrated? Well, maybe you're frustrated for a minute. I don't know. But why would you do that? Because... The setting up of chairs so the preaching of the word can go forward is something you do because Christ compels you and you love it. We have a shared relationship, a shared purpose around gospel obedience, each with unique roles. But the message for us is the same, and this is a message about and from a person. Notice this is the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's the Father's message. How do I know it's the Father's message? Notice the beginning of verse 3. It's the gospel of God concerning his Son. This is the Father's message, and I didn't bring up the cross-reference here this morning, but I just thought how sweet this is that the gospel message we proclaim is not only the gospel of Christ, but just like Christ says, I came to do my Father's will. I have nothing to say but what he gave me. We proclaim the Father's delight in his Son. Right? It's the gospel of God, not only because it's God's declaration about his Son, but it's God's delight 
in his son that we get to share. Why are verses 3 and 4 so important for us? I would so strongly encourage you to memorize them. Not only because they are the truth upon which our faith is built, but because they're the delight that motivates us. How can you wake up to do any of the things that you have to do? How can I sit down after I come back from the mail to write yet another paragraph of this paper? Because my delight is in God's delight in his son. And that is a topic worthy of infinite thinking. I loved what Dave Doran said at Devoted if he were there. Or maybe this was Smed as well in two different places where they were, were talking about what is the gospel? It's not only a message about God. It's not only the power of God, but it's our delight in God. First Peter says that he might bring us to God, that our delight might be in him. I chose not to spend a lot of time explaining gospel this morning because that's the point of the whole book. Right? We're going to spend 16 more chapters thinking about what is the good news that God gives about his son. By the way, another term that Romans were familiar with. If you're thinking about the Roman Empire this morning, good job, you fulfilled your TikTok job. Okay? And one of the things that, that the Caesars loved to do, the Augustus Caesars loved to do, is not only say, I mean, I always think of Augustus Gloop when I say that. I know what they were trying for, but what I hear is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right? You know? uh, so what they, and that's typical with politicians, right? I am Augustus, I am going to do good things for you, and here's the good news that I'm going to tell you about the fact that I'm sitting in a, Rome, on, in a palace in Rome eating, you know, what did Nero like to hummingbird livers, right? Here's some good news about my opulence and your being a slave in my lovely empire, right? So the Romans are really familiar with declarations of good news, but not only are the Romans familiar with it, people who've read their Bible are familiar with it because think back to maybe Isaiah 40, right? Comfort my people. How? By declaring good news about who's to come, about the king who is to come. So I want to unfold this good news for you through the 16th uh, chapters of this book, but I also want to focus you again on the particular aspects of God, good news that Paul has in mind right here. Why? What's the TLDR to this? Why do you have to know about this good news? Paul's going to focus in on what he thinks are the most important aspects of this good news. And I would just ask you, would these be the things you picked? If you got the question Smed got on uh, Saturday evening at the, the Q&A, what is the gospel? And I just saw his eyes light up. Like He had just told me, I'm not going to answer any of the questions. I'm going to make sure Dave says all of them. And then you float that question out there, and he's like, oh, I get to answer that question, right? If you got asked that question, what would you pick? Well, if Paul was on the stage in Rome at a Q&A, and somebody said, what's the gospel that God gave you about his beloved son? These are the things that Paul says, you've got to know. This will put some strength into your tea for the week. This is proper theology. What do you have to know? You have to know that this was promised. You have to know that this was promised. It's the gospel that God promised beforehand. This isn't a new idea. This isn't, as has often been said, a reaction to the bad things that began in Genesis 3 and continued to spiral out of control until God said, what shall I do about this? Oh, maybe I can do something where I'll, I'll teach people how to love each other and be nice and give themselves up for other people. No. No, this is not a reaction, it's an intention. It's a promise on God's part. And it was promised very specifically through the prophets. God had agents by which he declared what he was going to do. And those were specifically the prophets of Israel. At this point, I would suggest to you 
as I told you a couple weeks ago, there's tension in the church at Rome between the Jews who have been there for a long time, maybe 200 years, there's a little Jewish colony in Rome. They've been there for a long time, and they're the heart, the founding members of this church, having brought the gospel back from the day of Pentecost and begun this church, but then having been booted out of town because of the very controversy uh, uh, within the church between Jews and the Gentiles and the God-fearers who began to believe. There's been tension, and now the Jews are back, and so there's tension in this church between what are the place and the roles and the purposes that God has for Jews and for Gentiles, for people from among all the other nations in the life of the church. And with this background of tension, you can imagine when Paul says he promised it through the prophets that the Jewish guys in the church are like, yeah, yeah, that's that's us. We did that, right? That's, yeah, I know they were prophesying how we were all bad and we're going to get deported, but yeah, that was us, right? The agents of God's preparatory work were the prophets who specifically were writing prophets. They wrote this by means of the Holy Scriptures. How do you know what the prophets promised? The same way the Bereans in their little tiny town in the nowhere of Greece were able to verify Paul's message to them. They opened up their Bible, or probably unrolled their Bible, right? And they said, yep, 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 yep. That tracks along a line beginning in Genesis and ending at the end of the Hebrew Bible and so in the end of Second Chronicles, right? Moving you through an expectation that someone will come. Which someone? We'll talk about that in a minute. He's going to tell us all about the promises. What are the content of those promises? It's what's concerning his son, right? So, but these things were written. They're verifiable. God promised this beforehand, and Paul says, my authority isn't novel, it's an extension. I'm proclaiming the result of God's purposes in the world, but I'm not dreaming up something new. You can fact check me. It's a gospel which was promised, but promise doesn't take you very far. When it's the promise of God, it takes you a long way, but it's not a reality yet. A promise is something that hasn't happened yet. So if you're a parent, you have to be very careful with your promises to your kids. Because I want to be truthful with my kids, and they're like, can we go to Disney? I'm like, no. So that was easy, right? But, you know, they say, can we go to Chick-fil-A today? Well, maybe. You know, one of my friends says, maybe means no later. Right? Right now you say maybe, but later you just say no. And they'd say, well, that's great that Chick-fil-A looms in my future, but it's not doing very much for my tummy right now. It orients you towards your hope. It doesn't fulfill it. For Paul to say, you need to obey this. You need to have your life built around this. It's not enough to say, hey, God was going to do something. No, we have to get around to, he did it. And yes, he's going to do more. But the saving, the central thing, has come about in this gospel of his son. It's been promised. It's verifiable. And it's a promise about the pedigree and power of his son. Pedigree sounds like a commercial for dog food to me, but it means something better than that, okay? So maybe that's not the best one. If you come up with a better alliterated word for me, you let me know. This was promised in the scriptures, but now it's happened. And it's happened... In his son. Now, I want to draw your attention to this word son here, not to explain the idea of a son to you. I think you can get that. But I want you to see 
that it's the central word in this whole long explanation. The gospel is concerning his son, his beloved son, and that matters because everything that follows is going to explain something about this promised and coming and now here son. Right? So we're going to explain the son by reference to the son. Why does that matter? Because the son is. The son is not new on the scene. Think back to John 1 and the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. There's not a new son here. Something has changed in the mission of the son. Something has changed in the way that the son of God interacts with the world that he is in. Notice this. What has changed? He has been descended from David, according to the flesh. This is pedigree, and it's parallel with power. Notice that there are two relative clauses here for you who are at the hermeneutics weekend, both going back to describe the son. The one describes his descent, the other describes his appointment. One says descended, the other says declared. This focuses us on a particular thing we must understand about the son, and that's in his flesh. What does that mean? As a human. Paul can use flesh to mean all sorts of things. If you ever write the perfect definition of what Paul means in flesh, by flesh, they'll give you honorary doctorates at 600 schools and maybe the papacy. I don't know, right? I mean, it's a it's really complicated concept in Paul. When we get to chapter 6, you'll be like, Paul, why? But you know what? Here, it's very simple. You have flesh. You are flesh. Don't talk about me like that. You're a person, a human God's beloved son, same category. He's a son now in the flesh. Philippians 2 makes it clear that this is subtraction by addition. Right? This is humbling by the addition of a human form and body. It's not a lessening of what it meant for him to be God. The fullness of God now in human flesh. But Paul's focus here this morning is particularly on the descent. How did he get into that human body? Who were his forebears? What's his family tree? He was descended from David. Now again, I would suggest to you that if you were on a stage and you were being asked, what is the gospel? Your first response wouldn't be, David. Unless your name David, right? Our, our minds don't tend to start here. And yet, of the two half answers that Paul gets to give to this question, he's immediately concerned with this. Why? Because it's picking up everything that's come before. Don't turn there. I'm just going to read this to you. Uh, this is Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. If you want to write that down, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. I picked this out of a large list of passages because I liked it. And I thought it was somewhat concise. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness. I mean, I think that about sums up all the hope. This is given by a prophet to a people that are 
literally in the process of getting destroyed and removed from their land. And it's a promise that one day you'll have a real king, not a king who God has just disowned, the current king in, in that time. You'll have a real king who's properly descended from the great king who will do all the things that you need for salvation because he will be your righteousness. This connects the message about the son to the memory of the prophets. And again, the people in that room that are Jewish are like, David, that's our guy, right? David, we, we have him. That, he's our guy. But not only is his pedigree important, notice now the power. He was appointed to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Now, if you were there at our hermeneutics night, you know that there's some questions here about what do we mean? Is this declared? Is this appointed? Is it declared with power? Or is it declared to be the son of God in power, right? I won't argue out for you all the reasons that I have chosen to go the way I have. You can talk about it to me afterwards which, if you want. But I will just point out to you right now that I think that appointed or designated would be a better translation because it reflects the constant use of this Greek word. Okay? And I told you the other night, what is the first question for a biblical epistemology? How the Bible uses its own language. The Bible always uses this language to mean appointed not declared. It's something that you were put, determined, appointed, fixed. And let me just give you some examples of that. I think I had picked just one here from um, huh, I just brought my notes up too many times. From Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Oh, somewhere around 33 or so to start. This is in the middle of a sermon that Peter is preaching. He's quoting, starting in verse 30, but I won't go back there, Psalm 2. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. What is he appointed? He's appointed, he's designated, he's said something new has happened. He's always been descended from the David since Christmas Day, and now something new is also true of him. He is the Son of God, but now he is the Son of God with saving power. Philippians 2 would say he was humbled, and now he's exalted. He has saving power. He is able to save those who come to him. This appointment is by the Holy Spirit, right? He was David's son by his natural descent, by his flesh. But he is the son of God with saving power for you by the Holy Spirit. I told you earlier that Christ means someone who's anointed. Somebody who has something given to them to declare their power to rule. For David, oil as a picture. For Jesus, the very Holy Spirit of God. 
how do you know? How do you know that this one is not only David's son, but the right king, the one who's been appointed, who's been anointed as your king, not just with oil, but with the promised Holy Spirit poured out upon him? There's one way you know. He rose from the dead. You could even say he was declared or appointed the son of God in power from his resurrection of the dead. It's the starting point and the declaration of his power. Who is this one? Notice here the proclamation. He is Jesus, the anointed Christ, our Lord. This is peak Christology for Paul. I mentioned to you the other night, Philippians 2, the name above every name. Lord is not simply a way of saying master. It's saying Israel's one God. He is our Lord. Now notice very briefly, because we have not very much time left, our shared mission. This Lord has given Paul authority and an aim and an extent of his mission. Don't worry, we won't spend a lot of time on that because it will flow into next week. This Lord is not only the subject of Paul's message, he is the source of it. Through him, verse 5, we have grace and apostleship. I love this because grace is what happens to all of us. I used to, when I first came to this church, people would uh, share their testimony like at a youth camp or something. They'd say, when I came to grace. And I thought, that's such a sweet, interesting way of describing salvation. And then I realized that I'm an idiot and that they were describing when they showed up at the church and not necessarily God's work in their lives, right? But it would be a nice way. It would be a, a beautiful way of proclaiming what God has done for you. Paul received grace. He was headed literally down a road to destruction. And by God's powerful, sovereign call, he recognized and turned to the obedience of faith in Christ. But at the very same moment that he received grace, he received purpose in that. Right? I know we have very little time, but turn over to Ephesians 2, because I want to leave us here. Yeah, skipped right past it. Okay, starting Ephesians 2, verse 7. In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of what? Of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What does that look like? For by grace... By God's own freely exercised mercy, having nothing in you by which you would recommend yourself to God's attention. By his grace, you've been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not something that you did, worked, or achieved. It's simply God's gift to you that you obeyed and believed. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Now, notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Right? Paul says, I received grace and a job description. Right? Those two things are part and parcel of the Christian life. The mission of the Christian life, if we're going back to devoted from last week, is not separate from the salvation in the Christian life. Faith and obedience explain each other. Right? I'll read you one quote to finish about this explaining each other, if I can find it. Faith is not obedience. 
But as obedience is not obedience without faith, faith is not faith without obedience. They explain each other. You have to have both of them together. You're like, well, that confused me even more. Now, here's the sweet part of this quote. They belong together as do thunder and lightning in a thunderstorm. See and hear, boom. Can't have them without each other. Not the same thing. Paul's obedience of faith, his aim among all the nations, and now all the Gentiles that are sitting there are like, see, now it's about us, right? I told you, he's setting up. He has got them suckered in. He has hooked them on an interest, right? Oh, this is going to be about us. Paul's aim of obedience through faith is his particularly with one job description. He's the apostle to the nations. That's where they fit in this. But his mission is shared because you received grace and a job description. You received grace and Ephesians, right? To speak the truth to one another in love, to cause the church to grow. You received grace and the Great Commission, that the name of Christ would be proclaimed and disciples built around all the nations. This is a shared partnership because we have the same master, we preach the same message and declare the same message, and we run with this same mission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this mission. May we know Christ. May each one of these precious, shorthand, abbreviated moments of theological clarity drive us towards delighting in our Savior and drawing others in to delight in him with us. We pray it for his glory and by the power of the spirit with which you raised him from the dead. Amen.